Kia ora from Victoria University of Wellington. Our podcast gives you the chance to catch up with our academics and guest speakers who lead thinking on the big questions facing society. Victoria University of Wellington. Capital thinking, globally minded. Warm good evening to those of you who have made it here to join us. Um, I'm Professor Wendy Lana. I'm the provost here at Victoria University of Wellington, and it's my very great pleasure to welcome you here to this, the first of our provost lecture series on university futures. Now, many of you in this room may already be familiar with Victoria's new strategic plan and our ambition to be a world-leading capital city university and one of the great global civic universities. I returned to New Zealand late last year because I was so inspired by the vision that informs the strategic plan, and I welcomed the opportunity to come home. I was living on the other side of the world, just comparing notes with our guest speaker, feeling like I had a lucky escape and that I left the UK pre-Brexit rather than post-Brexit. Um, but the opportunity of the role here at Victoria to come home and help realise this vision. Now, as provost, my role is perhaps best understood as chief academic officer, the senior academic who leads Pan University research and educational innovation. I'm very clear about my role being an academic role, one in which high-quality underpinning research, international academic networks and world-leading ideas inform the relationship building that will be key to us realising our capital city university and global civic aspirations. What I want to do in this Provost Lecture Series is draw on some of what I think is the best academic thinking on the topic of university futures, inviting to New Zealand a series of world-leading scholars who are asking crucial questions like, as our speaker tonight, the economic value of universities. Other questions like the nature of civic engagement in an era when cities are seen as the engine for global innovation. What about the role of digital technologies in education? Or the new entrants into the university arena, including private and alternate providers? or indeed the increasingly internationalised and super-diverse context within which we work. My ambition in these lectures is that these engagements provide us with a strong intellectual framework around the national, sectorial and institutional discussions that we're having, ensuring that as Victoria realises its ambitions, we fully understand the context within which we are working. Now, in order to launch this lecture series, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome back both an old friend of mine, but also an old friend of Victoria University, Hugh Lauder, who some of you will remember because he was the inaugural Dean of Education here at Victoria. Hugh has been the Professor of Education and Political Economy at the University of Bath in the United Kingdom for the past 20 years and is a former institute, 
uh, former director of its Institute for Policy Research. Much in demand as a speaker, including to the World Bank and the European Commission, he is the author or editor of more than 10 thought-provoking books investigating the relationship between education and the economy and its implications for graduate employment. Thought-provoking, not to say downright provocative, with his last book, 2011's The Global Auction, subtitled The Broken Promises of Education, Jobs and Incomes. The title of this evening's lecture is also a little provocative. What are universities really for? Now, surely we in the university sector know the answer to that, you say. If we don't, we probably should be in a different line of work. But if Professor Lauder's research shows anything, it is that answers are there to be questioned. What is right yesterday may not be today and still less tomorrow. Globalised labour markets and the so-called knowledge economy are changing rapidly and in ways that make them far more complex than the simple equation of learn equals earn, Professor Lauder argues. Higher education does remain important, he says, and that's a bit of a relief, but more important than ever, in fact, in ways more complicated than often portrayed. Like Professor Lauder, Victoria seeks to prepare graduates who have the resilience necessary to thrive in the 21st century labour market. Graduates who have a specialised understanding of their field of study, can think critically, creatively and independently, can communicate complex issues effectively and have intellectual integrity. We too are also committed to securing the intellectual potential put at risk through social inequality and other disadvantage. But what of the rest of Professor Lauder's vision? Please join with me in welcoming him so we can discover more about what it is that universities are really for. Welcome, Hugh. And thank you very much for coming out on a night like this. Um, hell, I thought that you were terrific when you went to the Cape Tin on Saturday night. Um, for so many of you to turn up for this is truly impressive. So thank you very much uh, for that indeed, and I hope I can live up to some of your expectations. Uh, I should say that the work I do, um, I've been doing for the last 30 years with an offsider, Phil Brown, and so what I say is what I say, but we've done much of the research together. And uh, with our forthcoming book, which is called The Death of Human Capital, um, it's with Sidney Chung, who's an ace number cruncher, and you need him. Um, so let me just say, first of all, something about um, my predecessor here at Victoria, a man called Gerald Grace. And Gerald Grace, in his inaugural lecture, had an answer as to what education was for, and university education in particular. And that was, he said, it was the critic and conscience of society. Um, and you can see why Gerald Grace might say that kind of thing, um, and I'll refer to that in a moment. But I'd just like to say that in the light of Brexit, in the light of Donald Trump, then maybe we need to reduce our ambitions in universities if we're just a still, small voice of calm. That might be a good idea. <laughs> but then let's raise our sights a bit and hope for the best. Um, 
Gerald Grace was, was and is a devout Catholic. And so the critic and the conscience bit clearly was something that he was wrestling with, um, in a way. Uh, because on the one hand, he was stepping outside of the Catholic um, spirituality and religion, and now the, the conscience part was clearly something he was also working through. Um, and that then takes me on to Newman, who was also uh, a Catholic, and was one of the first people in the English language to articulate a particular view of the university. And we're not going to say much about it, um, except that it was to see this fully rounded kind of educated person um, that could move between disciplines and subject matter. And prior to Newman, the Humboldt brothers had done the same in Germany. Um, and Alexander Humboldt, of course, and there's a book in your bookshop about him. Uh, why has he, have so many plants been named after him? Well, because he actually went and did some research around the world back at the late turn of the 18th century. Now, they too argued for this kind of broad education, uh, and one that we might admire. I just want put one note of caution in about Humboldt's though. You go to Humboldt University in Berlin, to the central site there, and you walk in, and you would think you would see that philosophy reflected. But what you would get is Karl Marx saying philosophers have interpreted the, the world, the point is to change it. And maybe there's a bit of that in what I want to say tonight as well. So um, let me then say something briefly about how I'm going to shape this talk and then um, move on. First of all, I want to um, try and raise some fundamental questions about the link which has been the bedrock of justification for education and university education in the last 30 years and that is that it relates to the economy. Now it is the case that universities will always have a role to play in economic terms, in terms of research, for example, in terms of some forms of professional training and education. However, they are changing very rapidly. So that's part of it. But the kind of opportunity bargain that we used to th think was current and was the bedrock for our justification was that if you get a good university degree, you get a good job. And those days are gone. They are fast disappearing, and I'll show you some data on that from our own research. Um, there's some more research that's come out from the United Kingdom, um, which um, I wanted to show you, but it's so complex, even when it's thrown up in graph form, I'll just say a bit about it rather than you trying to work out what the hell's going on. Um, when there's a bigger theme here to, to be working through. So having dealt with the education economy bit, then of course we have a problem. And the person that um, kind of alerted me to this when I was walking, talking through this was Brian Easton up there. He said, well, what education for then? I thought, well, hell, good question, right? Um, and so what I want to do is talk a bit about what I think education should be for in the light of the new circumstances we're going into. We're on the cusp of a major change. And unless we prepare for that and think through that, um, we will get caught um, in a way which is going to find it very difficult uh, in terms of attracting students, if nothing else. So um, I want to talk about those major changes. I want to talk about a view of education in terms of um, 
Michael Young's concept of powerful knowledge, but I want to elaborate and develop that a bit. And it's not watertight, needs more work. Um, and then I want to talk about civic universities. And the reason why I want to talk about civic universities is because as I drove out of Wellington Airport, hey, there's this huge advert, you'll have no doubt all seen it, about a competitor university. And I looked at that and I thought, you know, hopeless. Um, so, absolutely hopeless. Not in the game at all. Um, and I'll explain why I think that's the case. So you can see it's going to be a bit polemical. Um, but nevertheless. <laughs> so that's basically the way I'm going to do it. Three, three sort of blocks here. So let me start with the first block. Um, one other thing. Universities used to be considered, um, in social terms, for the links with, with the economy, with social mobility. And that's where I started off my career in New Zealand. It was on uh, who went to university by social class and gender. Um, and then citizenship. And, I wanted, and of those, the social mobility one is so complicated now because we have global universities and we have global secondary schools that feed into those global universities, that feed in then to the transnational companies, that addressing at a national level issues of equality of opportunity are much more complicated now than they ever have been. So I'm going to park that to one side. But happy to come back. I will take questions at the end. I hope I won't go on for too long. Uh, and hope that you have some questions that we can have a discussion about, because that's what this is all about. Um, then, so education and economy, social mobility, and citizenship. Citizenship is real tricky. Um, and I'll give some examples of why it's tricky. But nevertheless, I think it's in the new world that we are entering, I think it becomes a very important thing to think about. So that's basically it. Um, now, I don't have a clicker, so I'm just going to have to do this. Let me start with this. This is Bath Abbey. Um, and I tell my students that they should go to Bath Abbey and look at it from the outside. And when you look at it, you will see that on the two sides of the door, there are two ladders. And what you won't see, probably, is that they are angels walking up those ladders. And they are, so this is Jacob's ladder, and they're walking up towards heaven. They're climbing the ladder towards heaven. Some of them have been sinners, and they are falling downwards. And if I had a clicker, I'd point and show you which ones are falling down. But some of them are. They've been the sinners. And in a way, the rhetoric about the knowledge economy has been built on a secular version of that. That basically, if you climb the credential ladder, and you get to the top, you get your degree, then you're fine. You know, you will get a good salary, secure job, you'll be able to be creative, you'll have a degree of autonomy, all that stuff, and it's just no longer the case. So what I want to do now is just run through some data on that with you, so to make that point. Uh, and then we can move on to asking, well, now, now what should, I should have entitled it, now what is a university education for, and looking at that. And I should say that I know that in New Zealand there are many polytechnics that also offer degrees, so I'm not trying to exclude them. Um, it may well be that there are questions there for the polytechnics, although they're vocationally oriented, that's fine. Um, but just 
that I haven't ignored them, as it were. Okay. Economic change and the demand for skill. What's changed in the world um, to produce the kinds of data I'm going to show you? Well, what's changed about the world is that, first of all, corporations are now transnational corporations, by definition, global. And they dominate in terms of innovation. Uh, they dominate in terms of employment. And if it's not immediate employment, they knock on in terms of their supply chains. Uh, and what you have there is two things. One, they are now much flatter in organization. So the old ideas of a corporate ladder that you climbed, pretty much gone. Uh, and you can see that every time you go to an ATM, because we used to have bank clerks. Um, I know that there's an anomaly in America. They still seem to have quite a lot of them. Who knows why? I don't. But by and large, they've gone. And so there's a gap in the middle that bank clerks used to be able to move up until they became managers. All that's gone, as you know. We now have what's called straight-through banking. Um, you don't need almost anyone in a bank anymore, uh, except to answer queries that you might have, because the technology does it. You just do it off your iPad. Uh, you just shift your money around. So much flatter corporations. And I think the point is that these transnational corporations don't see national labor markets. They don't think in national terms. And I've told this story, um, I got interviewed back in February, and told the story then, but it was just the first interview that Phil Brown and I went to um, for this research that we've now been working on for 10 years, more, uh, was in southern Germany. And it was an engineering firm, very famous engineering firm. Talked to the HR executive and I had this kind of human capital view, and I said, so do you, have an, do you have a skill shortage in terms of engineers? And he goes, no. Oh, okay. Do you get them from Germany, I said. Smart question. No. Do you get them from Britain? No, and you can see how I was thinking then. This is 2005. And then I said, okay, do you get them from America? He said, no. I was getting frustrated. I said, well, where do you get them from? He said, China, India, uh, maths and IT, Russia and Bulgaria, because Bulgaria was the Soviet um, designated country for IT. And that company had been there the whole way through the Soviet era, which is another thing about transnational companies. Interesting. So all of a sudden, we began to see that the world was being viewed very differently by um, these transnational companies from the way that we had been thinking about the world in terms of national skill, national labor markets. Very, very different indeed. So, um, there's an issue there about where skill is sourced. And of course, multinationals will always source from the cheapest if, if, if everything else is equal. They just do it, uh, and they do it ruthlessly. Um, but, one of the other things that we discovered was that technology becomes much more important. Um, because what's happening is that technology is moving up the skills ladder, not perhaps the most appropriate metaphor, but technology is moving up the skills ladder. And many of the jobs that were done by skilled people in the past no longer are done by skilled people. 
And what we're seeing is a re-stratification of professional work uh, in terms of those who are at the top of the professional tree. Um, that assumes you can climb it. You can't. You're either going at the top or you don't now. Um, but at the top, um, and then beneath that, people that kind of do the bidding and execute the creative work of those at the top. And then you have people who do routinized work. And that's increasingly the pattern across the professions. Um, the first to do this was law. Um, so you're getting a stratification of knowledge work, um, which is something that I'm going to talk about uh, a little later. But let's have a look at what this means for graduates and graduate incomes. So here we have men. This is United States hourly earnings. Um, Oops, 2010. And the green line at the top there um, is those at the 90th percentile. So these are the high earners. And what you see there is what you kind of expect. These people, very good um, income. Uh, and they start with very good income. And they start with very good income because we now have an ideology of talent. So at the moment when we have all these people in the world who are graduates, better educated than we've ever had before, then a new ideology comes in and it says, yeah, oh, yeah, but only a few are really talented. You know, human beings, sometimes. So that's that green line. Then you have two lines there, an orange line and a red line. And the red line is your median graduates. And the orange line are top high school students who have not gone to university. Who have not gone to university. And then beneath that, you have um, those at the 10th percentile, graduates, um, high school students, uh, and the purple line is the bottom decile of high school students. So what you see there is that the idea that you could somehow get a degree and then move smoothly into a reasonable job is no longer the case. It's being varied, fractured. We call it a kind of fractured labor market. It's much more complex now. Um, now, I should say, because I used to hate it, you used to get all these big cheeses from overseas come to New Zealand, and they'd go, yeah, but this is what's happening in the world. And I'd go, yeah, but we don't know that yet. Um, we need to find that out for ourselves. So it may well be that the New Zealand labor market is different. Um, I mean, it's different in one way that if you have a problem in terms of excess supply of graduates, they can do a do OE and stay away for a while. That's a kind of tradition that's not acknowledged or undertaken in other countries. But, I, you know, so that caveat needs to be thrown in. Now look at the women. By age. 20, 29, 30, 39, 40, 49, 50, 64. I mean, in this day and age, that is extraordinary. And if you think this is just America, <coughs> then that's the men, and they pretty much mirror what we have in the USA. And that's the women. And that's the women. So the days of post-feminism, I think, were very short-lived. Um, 
There is much work to be done. Uh, there really is. It's extraordinary. So what I've done is give you a broad picture. Now let me narrow it down a bit. There are real crisis indicators here uh, from these data. Those data on them, their own won't tell you, won't make the argument. They can contribute to it. They won't make it. By the time you throw in this lot, it looks a little different. First of all, it's very clear that since around the year 2000, roughly, um, the demand for high-skilled, high-wage work has stagnated in the United States and in Britain. Um, but what these characters from Vancouver have pointed out, this is Baudry and his team, is that for the younger generation, there seems to be a decline in demand for high-skilled workers. So then, when you look at those who are underemployed, then you see that around 50% in the United Kingdom and in the United States uh, are underemployed. Now, that's a tricky concept, and you can analyze it in various different ways. But So these should be taken as kind of rule of thumb. It is the case that university graduates, on average, on median, earn more than non-university graduates. But you need to see that dynamically. You can't just hold it there and assume that it's all okay. And the reason for that is that um, graduates are being bumped down, and as they get bumped down in the labor market, so they bump the less um, educated and skilled down as well. So their incomes are going down, but they still can be higher, as it were, across the board. And I think there's something like that going on. Very difficult to actually get your hands on that and work it out as to whether that is the case. But the other point to make here is that um, these data and these trends started well before the Great Recession in 2008. So they are not a function of that Great Recession. Might have been exacerbated by it, but not a function of it. Um, the only econometricians that we know that have had a look at our work on the stratification of knowledge work, um, quantitatively, uh, Craig Holmes and Ken Mayhew at Oxford. Um, and their analysis suggests that what we're suggesting is actually the case. Very detailed kind of analysis they've had to undertake to do that. So that's the crisis indicators. Is there a problem? Well, I gave a talk at Harvard um, September last year. And then we invited over, so, and one of the leading economists of education uh, at Harvard uh, responded to my paper. Um, and then um, we had someone from University of California, Irvine, come over to visit my Institute for Policy Research. Um, and both of them couldn't take in what I was saying. I mean, that's the only way I can describe it, because it was so opposed to their own theories and expectations. Um, and one of their colleagues, a leading economist, a guy called David Autor, um, recognized that there's a problem. He thinks there might be a problem. And he goes, look, the primary system of income distribution uh, is through the market. And if you are more skilled, you get more money. That's, that's the basic human capital premise, as it were. Um, but he understands. Now, in America, they've missed a trick. 
because they're not looking closely enough at what actually is going on in the labor process. So they drop data. But data always of quantitative sort always comes in well behind uh, quantitative data. It comes all well behind the sorts of analysis that Phil Brown and I have been undertaking. And so Ortel thinks that the only problem is when the robots come. But algorithms are already here in terms of what we call digital tailorism. That's where you basically standardize and routinize professional work. Uh, and um, that now is being rolled out right across the board. It doesn't matter whether you're doing banking in India or banking in Bath. Same thing. Absolutely same thing. I'm being there and asked. Um, so uh, it's not that the robots aren't coming. I'm sure the robots are coming. Um, but we're already in the process. It's not like today the robots aren't here, tomorrow they will be here, they're here. But there are algorithms of different sorts that are, come under this broad brush notion of robots. So he thinks there's, um, are we on the verge of throwing off the skill shortage? Yes, David, we are. Um, and it's going to cause us huge problems. Um, and just, I thought I'd show you this picture, because pictures... I'm told very good for PowerPoints. Um, I'm trying to work through the argument and the ideas, but anyway. No, not that one, this one. Can you see that? I, every day, I walk down a corridor, and at the end of the corridor, to get to my own office, and I walk through the computer study science department, and there is artificial emotions and human-robot collaboration. Collaboration. I mean, these people are way ahead of me. I'm, I'm looking at this thing, I've got to take a photo of this. What does this mean? Human-robot collaboration. So I said to the professor, and I said, what's going on there? He said, oh yeah, she's very bright, real star of ours. You know, and what she's doing is getting robots to um, identify human emotions. So the robots are coming. Um, I was talking to one of the leading Infocom companies in Singapore um, a couple of weeks back. And Phil Brown is not, he's kind of reluctant with the, he, the digital terrorism stuff he understands very well. He understands, no doubt, the robots very well. I just have a different view. And so we said to this guy we were in, interviewing, said, well, how long before um, driverless cars come in? And he said, in Singapore, four or five years max. And he said, in Manila, probably 30 years, because they just can't deal with the chaos. But in Singapore, no problem at all. So I have no idea, but this stuff is coming fast. Um, and you can see the little character up there. A bit ugly, but oh well. OK, so we've got a problem. This is the problem. We need to make um, relevant and updated a defense of universities. Because if we don't, what happens is people will say, well, we don't need all these highly skilled graduates anymore. Um, we'll close down a whole bunch of universities. And you can see that on the horizon coming in. And we need to think about that. And we need to think about it for good reasons. And so this is my initial kind of take on this. So that's the end of it. Let me just say one thing. When I said I think the world is fundamentally changing in ways that we might never have expected, one of the ways in which that's the case is that 
life will be so uncertain for the majority of graduates, far less anyone else, that we need to really start thinking about our notion of a basic income. And it's significant that they held a vote in the Swiss parliament three months back um, on the basic income. And they lost it 70 to 30%. But it's a start because people are beginning to understand that there's something going on which is very powerful and that we really need to think about. So hold that because I'll come back to it. And the question then is, universities can't address the issues of the economy. I know that you have a policy being introduced in New Zealand where you're going to look at the job prospects or the jobs of graduates after six months. Well, I'll leave you to infer what you might from that as a policy, given what I've just said. Um, so let's talk about what university education might be for. Um, I want to look at, first of all, the labor market and graduates, in a way. But it's going to be a different kind of labor market to the one that we are used to. I think we're going to have to have a different understanding of what is a contribution in society other than that which is a return as we now have it in the labor market. And that's where the basic income also comes in. Um, and there can be many different forms of contribution, but they will be to do with caring. Um, there is a gender dimension to this very, very clearly. But there will be other ways in which a contribution can be made. And working through what that might be and how we understand it and how we can structure that is going to be one of the big challenges uh, for the coming decades. So how can graduates make a social contribution and what is it that they should be learning at university? The importance of powerful knowledge. Why am I talking about powerful knowledge? I'll tell you in a minute. What I want to do is, first of all, talk about Michael Young's work he coined this phrase, powerful knowledge. And it was a reaction. Michael Young was a relativist who rejected the idea that knowledge was anything else but the exercise of power back in the early 70s. And he made a big reputation for himself on that basis. And then had a total turnaround. And in 2008, produced this book, Bringing Knowledge Back In. Because what he'd noted was that education was about anything but knowledge. It was competencies, um, personal therapy, whatever. But it was not about knowledge. And he wanted to bring and defend the notion of knowledge. And he does it through the idea of social realism. Now, social realism is a tricky concept. But basically what it says is knowledge is socially constructed, yes. But some forms of knowledge reach out to the world in which we live and refer to that world, the external world, if you will, from our particular um, research cluster or whatever it happens to be. Um, and that seems right because if you look at the history of science, both natural and social, what you see is that we, our basic arguments are about what is our best theory. What is our best theory at any given time? Um, and so while he's not an epistemologist, he's a sociologist, that's where he started. Um, and he does it like this. So these are the social characteristics that Michael Young 
um, identifies as being key to our knowledge creation. So it's social and collective, yes, there is a intellectual fields that we operate in, and the, the key puzzling point would be the last one, the asymmetry between the cognitive and other interests. Because what he's all too well aware of is that some forms of claims to knowledge are what he calls knowledge of the powerful, not powerful knowledge. In other words, these are art forms of ideology, forms of knowledge or claims to knowledge which serve particular interests. Um, and that's what that last point is about. But he thinks, and I think this is probably correct, that you know our pursuit is for some notion, some notion, not the truth, but some notion of the truth. Um, and he thinks that these um, forms of knowledge development are actually rooted in disciplines. Well, so far so good. Um, some may say conservative, and in fact, Michael Gove was handed this book um, and told, look and suddenly embraced Michael Young as a, a fellow traveler. Um, and Michael Young was horrified. <laughs> Absolutely horrified, and he still can't get over it. Um, so, so far, so good. But here's the point I want to make in relation to the arguments today. It's to do with an insight he gains from Durkheim. And Durkheim puts the insight like this. He's, and this is Young referring to it. It's the social reality of unobservable concepts, which he thinks is very powerful. And it can be to do with religion. It can be to do with some form of deity. But it can also be to do with the fact that we know this thing isn't solid, really. Really, it isn't. Um, so um, what he's saying there is that what education enables young people to do is open up a new kind of world which is, steps them out of their sen common sense world, steps them out of the local, and invites them into a world which can be understood very differently. And I think that's one of the key things that is important for the future. We can step out of our world, and we can see the world in very different kinds of ways. And I think that we can understand this as a particular form of emancipation. Um, many different kinds of emancipation. It takes us out of our everyday life. And where I think this helps is that if we are thinking about a future which is very uncertain for young people, then what we would ask of them, or what we would hope that we could enable them to do, is to think of the world in radically different ways. To think of the world other possible worlds that they can engage in and think through. That it doesn't have to be the world as we have it here in this room at this moment. Now having said that, there are qualifications. Because one of the important things about powerful knowledge is that it's systematic. It's not like, you can go on OE, see America, see Britain, see Vietnam. But when you come back, what have you seen? Well, you might have seen lots of very interesting things, and you might not. You might come back and not think the world has changed in any way at all for you. Um, and the difference there, I think, is the ways in which disciplines, forms of analysis, can, be led, can lead us to systematic forms of analysis. 
So you might go to Manhattan and you might go, hey, look, fantastic place, look at all these shops. But you know, down, down the road a bit, there's Harlem. And it's that analysis, it's that form of critical analysis, which then becomes very important for the way in which we look at the world and to see the world in ways which are an alternative to the way that um, is current in our particular milieu, our local conditions. And I think that then links to resilience. Brian Easton up there said, well, what about resilience? And I thought, oh, psychology. Um, what, what do I know? I don't know anything. Um, but then I thought about it. I thought, OK, it's not just about psychology. It's about what are the conditions which enable people to be resilient. And those conditions can be knowledge conditions. They can be academic conditions, which enable us to see the world in different ways unexpected ways. And if we can see the world in those ways, then we have a possibility um, for a much greater and more interesting and creative future for young people than we otherwise would have. So that's really the guts of the argument that I would want to put. Um, now, you may come back and go, hmm, okay, is that it? Um, well, I think there's quite a lot to that. And I think it's very important. And of course, the point is that this is not just about physics or chemistry. Um, it's not about big data, although those things can all throw up very interesting and different ways of looking at the world. But it is to do with history, Maori history, and the way it's revised our understanding of this country. Uh, it's to do with literature, and the way in which a trained analysis of literature, poetry, poetry for the language, literature for novels, maybe the language, but also the worldviews that are articulated. These are all different ways of coming to the same point and arriving at a different, not arriving, always journeying, in a different kind of way. And so that is the argument that I would like to put. Now, I'm going to spend five more minutes and I want to do something about that advert at Wellington Airport. So this is the resilience stuff, and I've talked about that. A civic university. So first of all, let me get rid of some of the nonsense, as I see it. Um, so you get this sign saying, one of the top 100 universities in the world at Wellington Airport. So it, it brought back to me... Um, a lecture I gave at the Singapore um, Management University, and I had about 150 policymakers who'd been ordered to come and listen. Nice. <laughs> and I said to them, okay, you guys, guys generic, um, you guys are really interested in league tables of one sort or another. You're always benching marking yourself against league tables. And they go, yeah. And I said, okay, you tell me which country is one of the leading economies in the world and has only one university in the top 100. And they looked at each other and they thought I was just having them on. And then I said, and which country has 15 or 20 in the top 100 and the economy is going down the tubes? And they looked at each other. At this stage, my credibility was absolutely on the line. And of course, the answer is Germany and Britain. And that brings me back to Germany and the civic thing. Why is it that you can have so many outstanding, let's call it that for the moment, 
um, German transnational companies. And yet only one university, maybe they got two now, doesn't matter, uh, in the top 100. Well, because they have forged very close community relationships with their local multinationals. And so the work might not be Nobel science shattering, but in terms of those companies moving forward, hell, you know, you'd give your arm and a leg in Britain for that, or I should say England now, um, for that. <laughs> Scotland, I think, is probably on the way out. Um, so what we need is to understand much more about the reality of the world in which we live rather than the advertising. And the reality there is that these league tables are highly deceptive if you want to link them to economic development. Um, they just, the connection is tenuous at best. Um, and there is more work coming out of um, some of the work from the OECD, not from them, but when you reanalyze the data, what you show is that the relationship between adult uh, skilled workers and economic performance, there's very little connection. So the, the relationship, the, the OECD have convinced that human capital theory is alive and well and living in the world. Um, but when you actually pick it apart, that's not the way it looks at all. Um, so um, we need a way of thinking about a civic university which takes us away from that stuff and concentrates on what's really important. And it's important in terms of the, econ the economy, such, and there still will be an economy, but what are the connections there in terms of research? But it's also important in terms of how we understand our graduates and the fact that they're not going to just shoot off and get good jobs in six months. I mean, those days are gone for many. That's my view. Um, so we need another way of understanding um, social contribution. We need another way of understanding what we mean by a labor market. Um, in other words, what you can see is that systematically, everything from education, productivity, economy, the labor market, is all up for grabs. And it's all to play for. Um, but what's important is that we know that that's the game. Now, you may well decide that I'm exaggerating. And I'm not predicting. I'm just saying I think this is what's going to happen. But the indications are there. Um, there are enough indications there to make this a very plausible story. So um, that really brings me to the end. I could go on for much longer, but I won't. So that's it. Um, Thomas Kuhn, who was one of the great social psychologists of research, um, as an epistemologist, not perhaps that great, but um, what he invites people to do um, when they change paradigms, as he called it, is to switch worlds. And it literally means you change, you change the world. Uh, you change your thinking, I should say, about the world. Um, which brings me back to Marx, of course. So if you have any questions um, or any issues that you want to raise or debate, then that would be great. Thank you. To stay up to date with the latest cutting-edge research from Victoria University of Wellington, subscribe now through iTunes, Stitcher or your favourite podcast provider.
Thanks to Takoki New Zealand School of Music alumni Kenyon Shanky and Stephen Patton for the use of their music. Victoria University of Wellington. Capital thinking, globally minded.